The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Boyhood, the new Richard Linklater film. And joining me in Slate Studios in New York to talk about it is Seth Stevenson, a contributor at Slate, a longtime writer and favorite at Slate. Hello, Seth. Hi, Dana. And from the Slate DC Studios, we have Dan Coyce, a senior editor at Slate who is also clamoring to come in and talk about Boyhood. Hi, Dan. Clamor, 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 <laughs> clamor. Yeah, you pegged this one months ago. You said, I want boyhood, damn it. Yeah, so, and then you were like, yeah, Stevenson called it yesterday. I've right. been excited about this movie since I first heard about it like three years ago. I've been, <laughs> I've been excited about this movie since 12 years ago. No, it, it was a secret then, the Dan. It was a secret you did not know about it. Given the structure of this movie, I think we can just say that we've all been waiting since infancy for this movie. Correct. <laughs> so so for those who haven't heard about the uh, the project that Boyhood is and the way it was put together, which one of you wants to, to summarize how what Boyhood is as a film? I'll do that. All right, uh, take it. So yes, yeah, spoilers ahead. This is the spoiler special, although in this case the spoiler is that time moves in a linear fashion. Uh, so the Boyhood was shot over the course of 12 years by Richard Linkletter and his very game cast. Um, every summer, for a couple of days up to a week, they would all get together, and he got IFC Films to fund this crazy experiment with the knowledge that maybe it wouldn't work at all. But so it follows one boy, uh, Mason Jr., um, from the age of seems like about seven, maybe six, to about 18. Um, and we visit him for a few minutes every year and see him as he grows from boy to man. Um, we also meet his sister, Samantha, who's played by Lorelai Linkletter, the director's daughter. And we meet his parents, who are played in really quite astonishing performances over the course of 12 years by Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. They are divorced. They live with their mother. She uh, endures, and they also endure a series of successive bad uh, stepfathers or stepfather figures, all the while their actual father sort of hovering off in the distance, having days and weekends with them and trying to reconnect and get his life together as well. So that's really the plot of the movie. It's this boy coming into his own and discovering what kind of man he's going to be with the help or hindrance of the men around him. Um, and that's how it was made. Right. With the result that this movie feels, to me, I think most people who have seen it kind of agree. I mean, most people seem to love it. I think the three of us all, you could say, loved it to some degree. Yes? yes. Correct? Yes. I adored it. And I, I, As did I. And I think people experience it as something other than a movie. I wanted to start off maybe by talking about that before we get into specific points about the movie. Whether whether you sort of feel like this is hard to talk about as a, a object of critical judgment because of the, the kind of document it is. Well, yes. It, Go ahead, Seth. The off-screen story is almost as interesting as the on-screen story, the same way it is with the Before series, where the off-screen idea of the, these two actors and this director getting together over the course of a couple of decades to trace uh, these two people, the development of these two people's lives. And here again, the, just the thought of these people meeting up every year and seeing where they are in life and then going and filming, it's so bizarre. And so the, the, the backstory is every, much a bit, uh, is every bit as interesting as the actual narrative uh, in the film, which actually isn't, if you think about it, that interesting. Not, not a ton happens. And we don't see the huge moments in this, in this kid's life even. Um, this is a, a right. You don't see him lose his virginity. Right. You don't see Someone his pointed kiss, out there's no know. weddings, there's no funerals. You know the kind of markers that you usually see in a multi generational epic kind of story are not there. Yeah, it's a movie unlike almost any other movie. Dan, do you yeah. want to talk about the unmoviness of the movie before we we get on get into the plot? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very resistant to criticism in a way that sometimes would bother me. I think about some movies, but in this case, I view as a virtue. You know, it's like. The point of this movie 
it is clear in watching it was the experience of making it. And it is also, it's just a side benefit that it has turned into this sort of miraculous work of art. So then why is it not a self-indulgent kind of, um, you know, family album, iMovie feeling kind of thing, which I don't think it is? Because it's so unbelievably universal of an experience. I mean, it's so easy to project yourself into the positions of almost anyone in this movie, into the positions of the kids, whether you're a, a... man or a woman there's a boy or a girl that represents the kid you once were to the parents if you are a parent or you have thought about parenting or you've thought about your own parents it's so easy to project yourself into that and part of the magic of the movie i think is that because it is so everyday and commonplace it doesn't force a kind of uh a kind of unwanted specificity onto the way that you project yourself into it it feels really universal even though the particular stories it's telling are not you know, it's not vague. It just feels universal. Right. It's not generic. Right. I actually I actually think a lot of Linklater movies are sort of critic proof. Um, you know, a lot, I, you know, to 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 criticize a bit. I mean, a lot of his movies are visually very uninteresting. It's there. There are very few memorable shots that you can think of from his movies. Uh, a lot of times the dialogue can feel a little stilted. The acting performances are very up and down. He sometimes uses um pretty non-professional actors and and sometimes the results are not perfect well that's the problem with boyhood at times i think lorelei linklater as charming as she is as a little girl doesn't really grow with the movie the way eller coltrane the amazing at first non-professional actor who plays the boy mason does yeah but i forgive all of those faults because uh every time i come out of one of his movies i feel a little bit better about humanity somehow there's just so much warmth and and depth and and humanity in his movies that i don't want to critique them yeah, and I feel like, it's with regards to the actors particularly, many of his movies, and this one especially, sort of embrace the awkwardness of their non-professionals. And so, to me, the issue with Lorelei Linkletter really didn't even become an issue. Yes, she was an awkward actress in her teen years, but we are all awkward actresses in our teen years. And so, it, did, like, it didn't bother me at all. It seemed of a piece of what this movie was supposed to be. Did the acting of Marco Perella, who plays the first alcoholic or the second husband of Patricia Arquette, but the first alcoholic that she marries in this kind of bad marriage period. Did that guy's acting bother you? Because I felt like he was scaling his acting wrong for the part and that his scenes got to be a little bit cringeful as he was getting to be more and more of an angry drunk. It didn't bother me. And I thought, you know, one of the one of the problems, uh, Another, I keep mentioning problems with Linklater movies, despite the fact, I want to make clear, I love his movies. He's one of my favorite directors. Um, one of the problems with his movies is a lack of menace. I, I find he has trouble creating... Um, truly menacing moments. I mean, he did a, he did a movie about a convicted killer, which was just all light and happiness and bouncy. That the movie Bernie. Um, he did a movie and about that, and that convicted killer is now living in an apartment living above, above his, his garage. garage yes, um, that's which how we can warm talk about the more later. Is. And and uh, you know, he made a movie about bank robbers, the Newton Boys, where again there was you just never felt you know just even an ounce of menace in that movie. And so I thought it was good that there was a bit of a villain in this movie. And 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 the scene, you know, for me that scene at the dinner table where he starts throwing the glasses and, and he ends up with the hilarious line i hate squash which is it's actually a weird i wanted to laugh but the scene was so disturbing i actually thought that scene was pretty good and something like that needed to be there uh because we you know if if this had been a story of a boy's life from six to 18 with absolutely no down moments or you know or truly scary or menacing moments uh, i don't think that would have been accurate um, and, and, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, most of us won't have a moment quite that dramatic, but a lot of us do and will. And, uh, it didn't bother me. I didn't, I, di- I didn't find his acting, uh, pulled me out of the movie. 
I'm a little more on your side, Dana, in that I did find those scenes just a tiny bit clunky the first time through the movie, and I thought it had less to do with his acting than with, I think, Richard Linklater's discomfort with writing and shooting those scenes. Like, that scene felt very telegraphed, and his menace felt very telegraphed, and every goddamn time he poured liquor in a solo cup, I was like, all right, let's get to the (laughs) blow-up. But that, but that didn't feel like Marco Perella's fault. I mean, that guy just got to do a cool project for three years and had to be the bad guy. But I do think that the first time through the movie, that scene clunked a little bit for me. But I think it's also worth noting that another fun feature of this movie, I view this as not as a problem, Seth, is that the second time I watched this movie, basically every issue I had with it the first time melted away. And... Um, and the, just the experience of loving these people uh, in good times and bad became sort of the overwhelming feeling I had with it. And much the way that I have ended up loving the people for all their flaws in the Before Midnight, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset series, I have now ended up loving and incorporating these people into my emotional life in a way that feels very lasting. And I think that's why these I'm willing to forgive almost anything that goes wrong with these movies because the the overwhelming feeling I come out of them is one of love towards the people involved. So, Seth, you're writing something about Linklater for Slate this week in connection with this movie coming out, and I wanted you to talk about it a little bit here because it, it seems like it could it could spark an interesting conversation. You're writing about coaching and mentoring and sort of the, the role of character formation in Linklater movies? Yeah, more than almost any other director I can think of, Linklater is sort of a, a personality psychologist who's fascinated by the way that our mentors, our coaches, people, our parents, the people around us shape our identity, shape our emotional development. And that's obvious in boyhood. I mean, this is a movie that's entirely about watching one kid go through uh, peer pressure and different authority figures and different stepfathers. And, and how are these people going to shape who he wants to be and who he's going to become? Is he going to become a jock because his, his, his brutish alcoholic stepfather is giving him golf lessons? Is he going to become a musician because Ethan Hawke, his biological dad, loves music and wants to be a musician? Um, or is he going to become a photographer? because his second brutish alcoholic stepfather, you know, gives him a a camera sort of seemingly by chance. Um, So Linklater, in in a lot of his movies, this sort of how we are shaped by these authority figures and mentors and coaches is a big deal for him. He actually made a documentary uh, called Inning by Inning, Portrait of a Coach, about Augie Garrido, who's the legendary baseball coach of the University of Texas. And it was about how Augie Garrido is a, a, to use the Friday Night Lights phrase, a molder of men, and how he, he, he brings out the absolute best selves in his University of Texas baseball players. Had he been Linklater's coach when Linklater had a baseball scholarship? No, Linklater wasn't. Uh, I'm, I'm almost certain he was not Linklater's because I don't think Linklater was he didn't go Austin. To, he didn't go to UT for baseball. Right, yeah. Um, but uh, so there's that. And then and then there are also, you know, his other movies, Bad News Bears, about a baseball coach, School of Rock, about a sort of accidental teacher. And Linklater himself has, has sort of become, I think, a, a coach and a mentor. When you look at how he makes these movies, the off-screen stuff that's going on, he meets with these actors and asks them what's going on in their lives. How do they want to make their current concerns part of their character? With Boyhood, he met with Eller Coltrane every year and asked him what was going on in his life. And I feel like it, it's inextricable. You can, the, the, his work on this movie 
thinking every year about who he is and how he's developing and how he's changed from the year before clearly affected his development. I feel like Richard Linklater is going to become this massive looming figure in Eller Coltrane's life. Yeah, too. and I was thinking about the relationship between Francois Truffaut and Jean-Pierre Léo, who he watched grow up in a series of films over 20 years, I think. And they became so enmeshed and so close that when Truffaut died, Léo went completely off the deep end and was like, you know, attacking strangers and stuff like that. I mean, he was sort of an unstable guy and hopefully Eller Coltrane will keep it together. But obviously they must at this point have a very deep relationship. There was that beautiful image in the New Yorker story in Nathan Heller's profile of Richard Linklater about the Sundance premiere of Boyhood, the first time it was seen, I think including by the actors, the first time that the whole thing had been shown in public. And Eller Coltrane just sobbing and sobbing on his way out of the movie. Oh, he wow. couldn't talk to anyone in the press. Oh, I, I mean, I can't imagine it. It's your whole life before your eyes, literally. Um, and, you know, and perhaps the, the most bizarre example of this sort of mentorship is that when you mentioned this earlier, Richard Linklater, so he made this film about Bernie Teedy, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, the convicted killer. And uh, that, as a result of that film, it sort of helped contribute to, to Teedy, who'd been on a life sentence, getting released early. And now, uh, you know, last I read, Bernie Teedy is living in the garage apartment uh, at Linklater's house. Linklater is actually um, has such concern for the people in his films that he will even take a convicted murderer into his home. Um, that's how much of a mentor and coach and, 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 and sort of guide he's become. Um, he's also the godfather of Austin cinema. I mean, he's really the uh, uh, primary guy behind the Austin film scene and the Austin film society and how it's become such an incredible uh, movie region. Right. And it seems like the kind of compound that he has in Texas with these little cabins has become sort of also a, a breeding ground for, for creativity. Opportunities for young filmmakers, inspiration for young filmmakers. Let's, can we just saint though? Richard Linklater? Can we just, <laughs> let's just saint him. Well, but what's interesting, though, about the movie is that while the movie shows sort of the the welcome role that mentorship and coaching can have in a kid's life, um, it also shows how it can go wrong, right? Or And it also shows how, at the very least, it is not appreciated or not understood or resented by the kid who's receiving it. You know, there's that great scene where Mason Jr. gets back from a late night and sort of the second stepfather figure, who isn't really that bad, he's just sort of like grumpy and sad, is gets on him about getting home so late. And Mason Jr. is like, could someone just like get off my ass for five minutes? And that one of the things this movie shows is how childhood feels to a kid like a series of adults just constantly being up in your business because they want to mold you into the man they want you to be. Right. And so. And, and so I think that Linklater understands that there's a real role for mentors and coaches in people's lives, but he also understands that it can be difficult for kids to not feel overwhelmed by all the adults who are in their business all the time. And so the scenes of mentorship that I sort of like the best in this movie were the ones that were a little bit quieter and less overt. You know, when Ethan Hawke is like, vocally trying to be a dad, like saying, oh, this is the kind of dad I'm going to be, and then being a dad with a capital B and a capital D, that struck me as the kind of forced mentorship and parenting that people engage in all the time that in the end often doesn't help kids that much. But when, for example, his step-grandparents have him over for his birthday, and there's that amazing scene where for his birthday he gets a Bible, a suit, and a gun, um, like that felt to me like a very sort of unfussy, quiet kind of guiding hand of the sort that really probably in the end benefits kids more. And we saw in Days and Confused, we saw that, um, uh, uh, again, uh, Randall Pink Floyd tearing up the pledge he's supposed to sign, where his football coach wants him to pledge not to use drugs and alcohol, and he's resisting against that. Um, 
And you had this, that, that lecture from the photography teacher in the dark room, which, right. which actually was kind of menacing in a way. I, was, I didn't know what was going to happen in that lecture. That was, it was a little strange. <laughs> but it turned was, out it was fine. It that was a great fine. scene. That, well, that's right. something that happens in this movie a lot, which is things that are framed as if they're going to be menacing turn out to be fine. And that obviously, I think in some ways, is, is a deliberate move on Linklater's part to remove drama you know, yeah. overt soap opera from like the movie, like what? the scene where the kids are hanging out, where Mason and his friends are hanging out in that house under construction, right. and they're doing all these really dangerous games, like karate chopping pieces of wood and almost kicking each other in the face. And there are both times that I saw the film, the audience was holding their breath, gasping, you know, waiting for some kid to get hurt and rush to the hospital. And, you know, there's going to have to be some trauma. And that scene passed without trauma, which kind of leaves you thinking, oh, yeah, that's true. Every childhood does have countless times that you might have gotten hurt and didn't. Yeah. Right, or the when they're texting in the phone, and she's like showing him her phone while he's driving. I was like, ah, fuck! Now they're gonna drive off a cliff. But of course, this and it'll is become not an anti-texting kind of... PSA. Or right, something. right, but no, but this is this movie is about the ninety-nine point nine percent of times when things don't go wrong. Did you guys feel at all uncomfortable with the uh, Patricia Arquette helping the Mexican American worker get an education? That whole little subplot. More mentorship. Yeah. More coaching. <laughs> Because um, I felt like that needed one more scene. If there'd been one more scene in between where she we'd seen that guy or she'd seen that guy, but it just seemed like too much of a, a setup response, kind of. It was a little bit, but I, I mean, one reason that I forgave it, as I forgave all sins in this movie, um, is that it was just it was another example of this movie being very careful to try and develop those adult characters the parents it just as much as it develops its kids um and i think that that's a subject that we should use this to get into is that scene did was a little bit clunky um and did feel a little bit coincidental but i didn't mind a small amount of fortuitous coincidence over the course of this movie because it didn't actually do that that much like we didn't have that many surprising returns of characters who we happened to see 11 summers ago so i didn't really mind one of them although yes i agree with you that it wasn't as sort of deftly or perfectly handled as everything else in the movie but it did allow patricia arquette's character to see a slightly different side of herself and it allowed us to see a slightly different side of her and so one thing that i really liked about this movie and i'd love to hear what you guys have to say about it is how much care it took to allow the two parents to develop and whether you thought that the mom, Olivia's story, developed in as interesting a way as the dad, Mason Sr.'s story. They both sort of went on different paths. She had a couple of false starts in her personal life while her professional life developed. He went in a direction that was slightly unsatisfying to him, though completely normal and, in fact, probably totally healthy. But what did you guys think about those characters and how they developed? I mean, I loved both of those characters, and I think Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette were both at the top of their game, like as good as I've ever seen them in anything. I've always been a huge Patricia Arquette fan. I watched all of Medium, that that, that show where she played a psychic right. housewife detective, just because she was incredible. Well, actually, the guy who played her husband was great, too. I just It was amazing Medium. to think that she spent much of the time she was making this movie. Doing Medium. Doing I thought Medium. About the same and like, oh, wow, right, and coming yeah. here for the summer to be like, oh, thank God, I get to do this now. Yeah, yeah. She seemed so comfortable and so at ease in this role. And, and I thought her character was very complex. I saw you, Dan, arguing about this on Twitter yesterday with someone who I, I will not name names, but someone who thought that her character was essentially sort of underdeveloped and that she ended up too miserable. We should definitely talk about her last scene in the movie in a minute. And I completely disagreed with that. I love that she got to play this character who was so complex that, you know, she made huge mistakes, really potentially dangerous to her children mistakes. And yet you always sympathized with her, you know, forgave her, understood and rooted for her. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, it was so it was Alyssa Rosenberg who I was arguing with, but I say that because I want to say in her defense that she was in fact making a different point, one that she cut off because people were like, please stop spoiling the movie on Twitter. Um, and so she, I think, is going to write a piece about this, but she in the end was not actually saying that she thought that this character was was more cardboard or more two-dimensional the other, than the other character. But she has a, a more interesting point to make, which I think she's going to make uh, presently. But Yes, I agree with you about Patricia Arquette's character. Seth, what did you think about Ethan Hawke and the and the development that he made? Did you feel like that character is a sellout? Did you feel like we're meant to believe he's a sellout or that we're meant to be- understand that Mason will one day know he wasn't a sellout? It seemed like a fairly classic development of of a man where you have this fast you have this idea you're going to be a rock star, you're going to be this this you know crazy windblown rogue in Alaska. And you, drive it, GTO, you drive no a GTO. You drive a GTO and no seatbelts, and and then it turns out no, you're going to have a family and get a, and have a minivan and, and, and sell insurance. You're, and sell you're insurance. an actuary. That seems a fairly realistic and not atypical progression uh, for a dude. Um, but what I'm fascinated by is the portrait we've gotten of Ethan Hawke over the course of these. I think it's eight collaborations with Richard Linklater now. Uh, a lot and a, and a lot of which where Ethan Hawke has had a lot of say in what kind of character he's going to be and, and, and also talk seems to incorporate a lot of his real life experiences or things that are really happening in his life into his character's concerns and the things his characters are talking about. We saw uh, in Before Sunset when he's talking about his marriage uh, with Julie Delpy that felt to me like he was talking about his marriage. Right, like um, Uma Thurman was yes, not happy. Yes, that felt like he was revealing a lot about what was really going on in his life and again here in, in this film I feel like we, we're getting this this uh, very rounded portrait of Ethan Hawke as a person. Um, I don't know if I love who he is as a person. I don't know how I feel about it, but but it, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of another case where an actor and a director have revealed so much of who the actor really is over the course of so many I kind of agree, so and I used to not be able to stand Ethan Hawke back in the Reality Bites days. He just seemed like such a smug, smarmy, That was his kind GTO Alaska Rockstar yeah, days. Yeah, his GTO so days. <laughs> and largely because of you know the, the sides of him that Richard Linklater have, has revealed. I, I love him now. Well, it's interesting, though, that in this character, in this movie, he gets to play, you know, because in real life, Ethan Hawke is still basically the Alaska GTO guy. Like, I mean, he's he's an artist and he does he owns an island, for God's sake. He owns a tiny island in Canada. And so he didn't actually become an actuary uh, in real life. But, yes, I agree with you overall, Seth, that the, the portrait of Ethan Hawke that's been presented here is really quite amazing. I know that. I mean, reading about this movie, I know that, for example, like those songs that he plays with the kids in this movie are songs that he played for his own kids as they were growing up. Which were a little uncomfortable for me. There's a line about, I want to call them, but I'm afraid their mom will answer. Right. It's a little uncomfortable with that. Right. That's a song he wrote for his kids, which is clearly about Uma Thurman. Like, so that's, and so, but I like So there's one one person who's not going to be a fan of Boyhood right there, (laughs) Uma Thurman. Even she will understand how beautiful this movie is. Uh, But I do like that. These movies, and one of the reasons I think that these movies, and I'm using that to broadly encompass this plus the Before series, feels feel so uh, emotionally honest is that they make a very deft use of the intersection between these fictional characters they're presenting and the real people who are playing them. That's a great way to get 
naturalistic performances out of non-actors, obviously. But it's also a great way to get professional actors to devote, I think, a little bit more of themselves personally and emotionally to your film. And so, and so someone like Ethan Hawke, because of this relationship he's developed with Richard Linklater over the years, and because of his ability to put himself personally in this film, is willing to do something professionally crazy like say, sure, every year for 12 years, I will take a break from whatever I'm doing and come back and shoot this movie with this tiny budgeted IFC film. Like that's a risk that it's hard to get actors to take usually, but Richard Linkletter, because he has this collaborative working environment, can get actors to take these kinds of crazy risks all the time. Can we switch to talking about Patricia Arquette's last scene since that's something I couldn't talk about in my review because it is yeah. kind of a spoiler. I, I, yeah. I talked to one friend who said his who loved the movie who said his wife was very depressed by that scene and that the, the vision of the empty nester, you know, it's kind of at the end of her rope and just essentially bleakly saying there's nothing left for me but to die as your son is packing to move off to college was so depressing that she kind of couldn't forgive the movie for leaving Patricia Arquette in that state. I mean, I guess to me, it sort of seemed like for one thing that there was a comical over the topness and a kind of like, oh, mom and her drama to that to that scene as well as, you know, real sense of heartbreak and devastation. And also we've seen Patricia Arquette's character, Olivia, get back on her feet after so many things throughout this movie that there was no doubt in my mind that she was going to embark on some interesting new chapter. Well, even Mason Jr. pops her balloon a little bit. He says something like, uh, aren't you skipping ahead 40 years, Mom? So right, even, exactly. even he recognizes that she's being a little bit overly dramatic. I mean, I do think that that was an amazing acting scene for Patricia Arquette and a very unusual choice for how to leave, you know, such a major character in the movie. But I wanted to know if either of you were either disturbed by it or saddened or, or what, how, what your response was. I was saddened, but I thought appropriately saddened. Like, one thing I really liked about that scene was that it seemed like it was going to as the scene was developing, it seemed to me like a real chance for the movie to lapse into sentimentality. And I liked that scene as an aggressive response to that notion. Like instead of a sentimental moment, she like literally throws a tantrum about about how pissed off she is about what is happening to her son. And I thought that that was totally like realistic and interesting. And yes, I think... Patricia Arquette's character, Olivia, is going to be totally fine. She's a very resilient woman. She is super smart. She has a great job. She's doing exactly what she wants to be doing. She is appropriately downsizing her life at this moment, and she will get over what she is going through. Um, I also love this as the possible setup for the next 12-year project midlifehood starring Patricia Arquette like what happens to her after everyone leaves the home year by year and we essentially see we see her moving into her dotage but with great fondness and affection like wouldn't that be great no doubt already being made secretly by Richard right. Linklater and 12 right. years from now Daniel claim you knew it was happening I just predicted it fine he has said that he doesn't feel like this project is over, that, you know, when he shows it at, at festivals and talks about it after screenings, that he feels like it's still a process that he's in the midst of. So, I mean, I don't think that that's saying that he would continue this project, but it's not ruling it out either or doing something else like it. Is he our most interesting filmmaker? Who's more formally ambitious? Who does things on his own terms again and again and again and surprises you? And it's just I, I look forward to his next film every time 
I he's I just love this guy so much. Yeah, he uh, is wonderful. I mean, but I, I would I could throw out some other names of people that I think are you know, and maybe formally, maybe even even more interesting, like Paul Thomas Anderson, who does something new every time, and maybe pays a little bit more attention to the the framing and the the sure. art of cinema. Although I was going to respond to your Richard Linklater never has anything visual to say with just the long take. You know, I mean, he is he is a master of that, and he does it a lot of times in this movie. He famously does it in in that that car scene in Before Midnight. Um, but I think he, what he is good at doing is finding a place to put a camera and choreographing what happens in front of it and that that is something that requires a cinematic touch and not only a dramatic one yeah he's become a more visual director as his career has gone on and this this movie actually had a bunch of sort of interesting visual callbacks to some of his previous movies and i loved for example that there's a mini before sunrise in this movie in which where ethan and his girlfriend are walking around austin like meeting kooky people and having dinner or eating queso I thought of that as a mini slacker but you're right you know no, the no, crazy yeah. guy rants in the restaurant is right, a mini but, slacker yeah. there's a mini yeah, dazed and confused also there's a kegger at, there's sort of a kegger at the moon tower for a few right. minutes too right I love those little callbacks but I do, I would note that I think that this is a little bit visually more sophisticated than the than the equivalent sequences in those past movies I, Seth to answer your question I think that there's no one there's no director who's thinking about the different ways that a movie can be more than Linkletter is. I do think that there are directors that are more formally innovative with with screenwriting and with storytelling and with and with visuals. I mean, I think there are directors who are doing more visually stimulating and surprising things, but I think there's no one who has who is thinking more about the role that a movie can play in the life of its audience and in the life of the people making it than Richard Linkletter is. I think that's his sort of great innovation and his the great passion of his life, you know. And so seeing all the different ways, as you've already said, Seth, that his movies intersect his lives and his actors' lives and even their subjects' lives in the case of Bernie, like that I think is his sort of great life's work. And it feels, I feel very privileged as an audience member to be able to sort of be looking at it from the outside. He's also the only director, I think not coincidentally, whose every movie makes me wish that I was doing what he was doing, mm-hmm. right? It makes me wish I was a part of this process. It just seems so fun and open and interesting. And and he's the only director whose movies make me go, oh, God, I want to find some years-long thing to do with my kids. I just want to uh, be in one of his ensembles. I want to figure out who I am and how I relate to the people around me as part of right. a Richard Linklater ensemble. Yeah, you want him to, to practice his psychological acumen on you, right? You're making right. me realize, Dan, in your description of his working process that the director that he reminds me of often when he's doing these big ensemble pieces and in terms of his, his work process is Robert Altman, you know, who sure. who in his great um, Oscar speech where he's accepting, I guess it was a Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was his last sort of big public appearance in his life, said this beautiful, beautiful thing about how making a movie with the way that he likes to make movies is like building a sandcastle with your friends, and you spend all afternoon making it as beautiful and perfect as you can, and then the sea comes and washes it away. It was this incredible speech. And I just feel like Linklater at the end of his career may be able to say something like that, that he's spent his years building those sandcastles. I also... I, I... I love the lack of pretension in the in the movies themselves, despite these you know elaborate uh, structures of the movies. The movies themselves, the things that happen, the things that get said, the people. There's a real lack of pretension for the most part in them that I find very refreshing compared to say like a Terrence Malick, who actually who actually if you could 
compare a lot of things in the Tree of Life to this. It's this sort of kaleidoscopic portrait of how a boy becomes a man. And, in Texas. And all the, yes, in Texas, and all the little random moments. In fact, in both movies, I, I just rewatched the Tree of Life. In both movies, there's a moment where a developmentally disabled person is uh, comes into the scene, and the boy is sort of confused by this and trying to figure out what this means. And, and it happens in both films. But the but the difference in the tone of those two movies is just <laughs> immense. <laughs> well, it is interesting. Like, there's a great, um, there's a really fun interview with Ethan Hawke and Vulture the other day that I think. Kyle Buchanan did in which Ethan Hawke he asked Ethan Hawke well how does he how does Linkletter work so well with child actors in particular and Ethan Hawke said well he's just really good at like lowering the pressure on a movie set he's always Linkletter's uh, take is always basically like uh, you know what let's just have some fun right now we'll make the real movie later right and, and the movie kind of sneaks up on you in the right in the, that's in the what all his movies feel like is that he is that everyone was having fun and thinking they'd make the real movie later but in fact that was when they were making the real movie life's what happens when you're busy making other plans <laughs> yep all right, guys, we have to wrap up this discussion, but it was such a good one. I'm so glad that you both volunteered and clamored to come talk boyhood with me. Clamor, 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 clamor. Uh, all right. Um, come back soon and clamor some more. Thanks, Dana. Thanks. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.